Well, in trying to determine what to speak on tonight, uh, I just uh, tried to go back over the last few days or a week or so on what's been meaningful to me. And uh, one of the things that came to mind was my wife pointed out uh, something that Audrey had posted um, on the Internet and it was a real blessing to me. <clears throat> so some of you have probably read read that post. But I, for those of you that haven't, uh, I wanted to read some of this. She was quoting from A.W. Tozer's book, The Root of the Righteous, uh, particularly a section, uh, a chapter called God is Easy to Live With. And it was a real help to me. <clears throat> at the time Renee shared it. So let me just, she didn't quote the whole chapter, and I'm not going to either, but just some of it here. Satan's first attack upon the human race was his sly effort to destroy Eve's confidence in the kindness of God. Unfortunately for her and for us, he succeeded too well. From that day, men have had a false conception of God, and it is exactly this that has cut out from under them the ground of righteousness and driven them into reckless and destructive living. Nothing twists or deforms a soul more than a low or unworthy conception of God. Certain sects, such as the Pharisees, while they held that God was stern and austere, yet managed to maintain a fairly high level of external morality, but their righteousness was only outward. Inwardly, they were whitened sepulchers, as the Lord told them. Their wrong conception of God resulted... (coughs) in a wrong idea of worship. To a Pharisee, the service of God was a bondage, which he did not love, but which he could not escape without a loss too great to bear. The God of the Pharisees was not a God easy to live with, so that his religion was grim and hard and loveless. It It had to be so, for their notion of God, for our notion of God, must always determine the quality of our religion. But that was a quite a good thing to remember. Our notion of God must always determine the quality of our religion. Much Christianity since the days of Christ's flesh has also been grim and severe, and the cause has been the same, an unworthy or inadequate view of God. Instinctively, we t- try to be like our God And if he is conceived to be stern and exacting, so will we ourselves be. It is most important important to our spiritual welfare that we hold in our minds always a right conception of God. If we think of him as cold and exacting, we will find it impossible to love him, and our lives will be ridden uh, ridden with servile fear. If, again, we hold him to be kind and understanding, our whole inner life will mirror that idea. The truth is that God is the most winsome of all beings. Now, I looked that word winsome up because it's not one we use a lot. It, um, it's appealing, attractive, lovable, pleasant, engaging, likable. So he's the most winsome. God is the most winsome of all beings. And his service is one of unspeakable pleasure. He is all love 
and those who trust him never need know anything but that love. He is just indeed, and he will not condone sin, but through the blood of the everlasting covenant, he is able to act towards us exactly as if we'd never sinned. Toward the trusting sons of men, his mercy will always triumph over justice. So, uh, just a good reminder. It was a good reminder to me. Uh, <clears throat> I need, I needed that at the time, and maybe someone here tonight did too. <clears throat> I'd like to speak to you this evening on the mercy of God. Um, I at the nursing home this morning. I spoke about Matthew's conversion. And how that after Jesus came to him and said, follow me, Matthew took him to his home and invited some of the, the, uh, the other tax gatherers and uh, some of the people that the Pharisees considered to be sinners. He invited those people to come to his home to hear Jesus. Uh, it may be since the tax gatherer was a very... Uh, low on the, well, as my dad used to say, low on the totem pole in Jewish society, that that's the only kind of people who could get to come to a gathering, that he, this feast that he was having. Anyway, he gets together some tax gatherers and sinners, but the Pharisees show up also, not, uh, not because they cared about the situation. They were looking for something to accuse Jesus of, and that's what they tried to do, let me just read the account here. They, uh, the Pharisees said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with tax gatherers and sinners? But when he heard this, when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, or that can be translated mercy. I desire mercy, compassion, and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. So Matthew, in his gospel, actually quotes that phrase from Hosea, I desire compassion or mercy and not sacrifice. He quotes it twice. Both had to do with the Pharisees. Twice Jesus told the Pharisees they needed to understand this verse, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus says this to the Pharisees after they, first of all, criticized him for being with sinners, and then, secondly, he does it again when the Pharisees criticized him for letting his disciples pluck grain on the Sabbath. In uh, both times, Jesus quotes this verse in response to the way the Pharisees used their supposed sacrifice. First of all, their, the first sacrifice was, well, we don't get around sinners. We, we sacrifice our, ourselves that way. We don't get around sinners. Sinners. The second was they avoided work on the Sabbath. That's a, another sacrifice they made. Well, both times then uh, Jesus calls them on that and says, "You're using your your uh, supposed sacrifice here as a basis for judging other people. Their sacrifice did not please God because it was not." not from a, lo a loving heart. Didn't he, they, they didn't love God and they didn't love their fellow man. They had a wrong view of what God was like and what really pleased him. God delights to show mercy, see. 
I desire mercy and not sacrifice. God delights to show mercy and desires that his people would be that way also. Uh, a very good example of that is the Good Samaritan. Uh, he stopped there when he saw that situation uh, with a man there by the road, wounded. He didn't stop to sacrificially obey a commandment. It says he was moved with compassion. He felt compassion. That's why he stopped. Um, whatever sacrifices the priest that passed by and the Levite that passed by were, were making in their religion, it did not produce in them hearts of compassion. So it was worthless. They, they could perform as many sacrifices as they wanted to back in the temple, but it, it produced no compassion for this person in need. Their sacrifices probably was a substitute in their own mind for that type of compassion. The goodness of the Good Samaritan is that he was merciful. When we talk about the Good Samaritan, he was merciful. That's what, what uh, we should think of. There are so many verses about this type of thing, desiring mercy and not sacrifice in the Old Testament. But the one that uh, I like uh, maybe the most is this one out of Micah 6, 7 and 8. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? That's what God's looking for. He's not looking for these outward sacrifices to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. What I'd like to do is just share a few thoughts with you this evening on the mercy of God. If you would turn to Luke chapter 6, just one verse here to uh, set the tone. Luke 6:36 Be merciful just as your father is merciful. So here the Lord is telling us we are to be merciful because that's the way God is and we have the example given to us from God himself. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. We're supposed to be like our Heavenly Father, which is, in this case, mercy. Mercy is an attribute of God. In fact, he's called the, the Father of mercies. And we're told that he's rich in mercy. And Luke speaks of the tender mercies of God. So, what is mercy? Well, uh, let me just kind of hit around on that a little bit. It is a kind mildness and tenderness of heart that cares for those, those in misery. Just like the Samaritan saw the guy in the ditch there. He cared for that person in misery. It's, it includes pity, compassion, gentleness, and forbearance. It's compassion for those in need. 
a desire to relieve suffering, just like, again, the Good Samaritan is such a good example of this. Uh, when, when Jesus said, now who, who was the neighbor there? And even the Pharisees had to answer, well, that was the one who showed mercy. So he felt compassion and he did something. He went to him and bandaged up his wounds. It's an inward sympathy and outward actions that flow from that sympathy. So it's, it's not just the, the feeling, but it's responding to that, showing mercy uh, towards those in sorrow or suffering. Of course, the Good Samaritan is just a picture of the greatest example, uh, and that is God sending his own son to die for lost humanity. There was no more miserable case than humankind after the fall, and God sent his own son to die. And again, that's very clear. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy that he saved us. So human misery brought forth divine mercy. If there had been no sin in the world, uh, God would still be merciful, but this attribute would never have been exercised because there was no misery anywhere in, uh, before the fall, uh, before creation. So it wouldn't have been exercised. God would have always been merciful, but, but it took the, the misery of man to bring forth the mercy of God. Since God the Father is merciful, of course, we see this also in his Son. I think that one of the reasons that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief was because of the sin and misery of the world around him. He walked through a great deal of sorrow and sadness and saw people as sheep without a shepherd and he saw hungry, hurting people. And uh, his pity and compassion was exercised out toward then to a lost and hurting humanity. Let's turn to Isaiah 53. Just want to point out one thing from these well-known verses. Uh, we'll just read verse three and four here. It says he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But uh, you might get the impression that it was because he was despised and rejected that he was a man of sorrows. And that's certainly at least partly true. He was personally acquainted with grief, uh, the grief that comes from rejection. But I really think that there's more involved, and I think that more comes out in verse 4, where it says that our griefs and our sorrows are what he carried. When it says, uh, 
he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Then those two uh, words are used again. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. He knew from experience what human suffering was like. This, of course, is a very major thing uh, that the writer of Hebrews brings out. He makes a point that this qualifies him as a merciful and faithful high priest. In other words, he's not aloof from our situation. He was right in it. He carried our griefs and our sorrows. Uh, Not aloof from our situation for... Again, from Hebrews, For we do not have a high priest who cannot, be, cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is tempted in all things like, like we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy, mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He can fully, he's fully able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Again, in Hebrews 5.2 it says, it tells us that he can deal gently. That's part of the idea of mercy there. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided because he himself was beset with weakness. So I I just want to make it clear that, you know, we should never think that because he was sinless, uh, he couldn't sympathize with our sorrows and our infirmities. The fact is, that the holier we get, the more sympathetic we become. Nobody, nobody felt the sorrows and the griefs of mankind the way Christ did. Uh, since he was sinless, his sympathy for all sorrow and sadness was therefore intensely keen. Alexander McLaren said, Jesus was the most sensitive, the most sympathetic, the most loving soul that ever dwelt in human, human flesh. He saw as none other has ever seen man's misery. And so he was a man uh, acquainted with grief, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And I think that's at least a major part of what we should think of when we think of him being that man of sorrows. And it's... It's surely part of what's involved in that little verse where it says, Jesus wept. Being perfect, he experienced the sorrow of that situation in a deeper way than anyone could. Anyone else could, even Martha and Mary. When it says Jesus wept, he was entering in to the sorrow there in ways that we probably can't even fathom. He experienced the sorrow of that situation in deeper ways than anyone could. He knew the anguish of the human heart in deep ways that we can't fathom. One thing we can learn from that and what we're talking about here is just that deep emotional feeling is nothing to be ashamed of. It's not, it's not a manly thing to just suppress that and, uh, or try to ignore it. It's not sinful to sorrow. So, God the Father is merciful. We need to learn what it means that he desires mercy 
and not sacrifice. And we need to daily ask Him for a tender heart, a heart, the heart of Christ, to have, to be like Christ in this, to have a sympathizing spirit when we see people in need around us, and just to help us to be merciful as our Heavenly Father is merciful.